Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I want to talk about the book that I just finally finished. The book is called Multi-Role Clinical Supervision. It's it's not a long book. It's 150-some-odd pages or something. And in the book, I detail my model of supervision in which there are 19 different roles. So basically, when if you don't know, every therapist, every counselor, every psychologist has at least one, if not several, supervisors who they have very often, they have very deep relationships with. They're much more than just a supervisor you would have at McDonald's or something. It's, it's a deep relationship. It's a mentorship. Uh, it's not always, but, but it often is. And the relationship is so important to the development of this therapist, and it's been tied to clinical outcomes later for that supervisee. And it's just, it's just a, a very important area in the field of psychotherapy. And I really care about my supervision, the, not only the supervision I've received, obviously, but also when I provide supervision to supervisees. I consider it one of the main reasons that I get up in the morning is to help supervisees with their work. Uh, mainly because when supervisees feel supported and cared for and when they feel like they can learn and they can count on me, they're much more likely to make a positive difference in the world with their, with their clients, right? So when I supervise someone well, that gives them kind of a foundation upon which they can go out into the world and, and really do all this wonderful work with the hundreds and thousands of clients that they, that they work with. And, and so I, I, I take supervision very seriously. But in my experience, there's a wide variety of dedication that supervision that supervisors will exhibit and I wanted to write about that and I wanted to advocate for things um, so in, in the book I talk a lot about my own personal experiences in supervision not only as a supervisor but also as a supervisee I also review a ton of research I probably read an estimated, I don't know, 3,000 sources. I'm just, just that's a rough guess. You know, anywhere between like two and 4,000, we'll say. And I cite hundreds in, in the book. It's a very research heavy uh, book. It's, it, it, so it involves a lot of my personal stories, but it also involves a lot of the data and the empirical uh, research. I, I also review a lot of other people's opinions and sort of incorporate that. And I provide just a ton of recommendations to supervisors because in the literature there in the supervision literature, it's usually a, it's usually not a lot of advice giving to supervisors. But I found that w w as I sort of um, metabolized all of these, all of this data and all these stories that I had and all these personal preferences I had. And I actually interviewed a lot of my supervisees too. And I, I asked them like, honestly, tell me what you thought about my supervision, <laughs> you know, you know, to just be brutally honest. Tell, tell me where I went wrong. Tell me what I, what I did well and what I didn't do well. I need to know what I didn't do well, because that's a very important thing for this book. So I can, I can talk about that. So after reading all the literature and talking to all these people and thinking about my own practices and thinking about my own supervisors, I, I found that 
I was developing this model of basically these 19 different roles in supervision. And I was giving a lot of advice to supervisors. And so it's a practical book in a lot of ways. But anyway, I wanted to read uh, the introduction and the conclusion of the book because I think it kind of sets it up nicely. Basically, in this episode, I'm trying to do a couple things here. One is, is I'm trying to raise awareness about supervision. That's the main, that's one of the main goals of the book is to, to raise awareness for the state of supervision because it's actually not great. There's, there's a lot of research indicating that supervisees are not being treated well. Um, and that either they are, either they have an inadequate supervisor or they, a smaller percentage has a harmful supervisor. And I can say from my own experience that uh, this is something I tell students all the time, actually, as I prepare them for internship. I tell them that, look, I know right now you think that supervisors and people who are given the title of supervisor are supposed to be these wonderful people and these incredibly intelligent, wise uh, you know, people that you can feel comfortable and safe around and blah, blah, blah. And what I tell them is, is that is not the case. Not only, because yeah, I myself have had 17 supervisors in my career and countless more instructors, but 17 direct supervisors who I met with on a weekly basis and gave me feedback on my, on my work. And I'm here to tell you that there's a bell curve of supervisors, and in the middle is this mediocre zone. In the middle, there is this zone where I would go to the supervisors, and I, I felt like I was just I was just wasting my time. I, I would every week I would meet with my supervisor, and I'd just be like, "This is pointless. It's useless. I'm, not, I'm trying to get something out of this, but I'm not." And you know, it's not bad. It's not harmful, but it's 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 a waste of both of our times. Um, at the high end, there's a, a, you know, a few supervisors who were uh, just amazing individuals for me in my life. They were mentors. They were were incredibly instructional to me. They, I, I still think about them when I'm working. So that's at the high end. But there's only a few of those. And then at the low end, there's there's even more. <laughs> there's probably like four or five who are harmful. Who are abusive, who are mean, who are selfish, who are narcissistic, who are psychopathic, who are randomly accusatory, who are chaotic, who are uh, unintelligent, who, who are terrible uh, clinicians, who, you know, so now you ask yourself, how in the world did those people get the mantle of supervisor? Well, I think there's a number of factors, but, but one of them is that we just don't have a way of monitoring that very well. And we also don't have, some supervisors don't need to be trained. There are supervisors, the vast majority of supervisors have received either no training or little training. So isn't that weird? You know, I mean, how in the world is that possible? So throughout the book, I, I'm talking a lot about that, especially in the beginning, because I'm, I'm trying to lay out this picture of like, the state of supervision right now in the field, and I'm talking about clinical psychology, I'm, t- I'm talking about marriage and family therapy, I'm talking about counselors, I'm, I'm talking about social workers, I'm talking about psychiatrists, I'm talking about nurse practitioners, I'm talking about everybody. It, when, and I've looked into research in all the fields, even nursing at times, and like non, non-psychiatric nursing. And there's just a, a sad state of affairs. 
where something like a you know a third of supervisees state that they're being treated harmfully, and then something like two thirds are being treated have a supervisor who's basically inadequate or unethical, or it's just all these terrible things. And and I've witnessed it firsthand because I've worked as a program director and as a core faculty member in a training program for twenty years. I've worked collaboratively with hundreds of other supervisors with my interns and have seen a wide variety of things. Plus, I also survey all of our we are, we have a large program. Most most counseling training programs have, you know, somewhere between like 10 or 20 students or pro- probably like 10 students a year. So they probably have like 40 students at any given time. Our my program has 140 students at any given time. And and that doesn't include the counseling students, which is another 140 students. And that doesn't include uh, the the psychology students or the PhD students. So we have we have hundreds of, of of students that are connected to me, and I survey them on their experiences at their internship site, and then they and they at at the end of their internship site because I want to know what these different internship sites are like, and they talk and they rate their supervisors and stuff. And I'm here to tell you that you know there's a wide variety of of quality in terms of supervision. Anyway. Now, I'm not blaming the supervisors for that. I'm blaming our system because we have it so that basically anyone can be a supervisor as long as they fit as long as they meet very minimal criteria. Criteria that have nothing to do with whether or not someone is in my mind qualified to be a supervisor. But anyway, so in, in this episode I'm going to I'm going to just read a portion of the book. This first bit is, is from the introduction. My first supervisor fired me. The matter had been decided. He told me I was unfit to be a therapist. Prior to firing me, he had not expressed any concern about my performance as an intern. So this is, this is 21 years ago. <laughs> um, he handed me a sheet of paper stating that the primary basis for dismissal was my unethical approach to substance addiction. With my voice wavering with fear and adrenaline, I said... Last, so I just chiming in here. I know all this detail because I journal, I keep a diary. And so, and I actually wrote a paper about this when I was in getting my master's 20 years ago. So I have quotes direct, you know, because it'd be hard to remember something that happened 21 years ago, but I actually have these quotes. And so, you know, um, all right. With my voice wavering with fear and adrenaline, which it was, man, my, my, I just, that, that I do remember. I just remember my heart was like pounding out of my, you know, that kind of PTSD reaction you get. Um, it's just, it was awful. I said, last week you asked me for my approach to clients with substance, substance addiction. And I told you what I had learned in school, which was to accept and accept, was to accept them as clients while strongly recommending chemical dependency treatment. At the time, you didn't say anything in response, but in this document, you are accusing me of having an unethical approach to clients with substance addiction, and for that, I'm being fired? My supervisor replied, I'm not going to have a dialogue with you. The matter has been decided. Unquote. I asked him if I could have a final session with my clients to say goodbye. He said no and instructed me to immediately leave the agency and never return. As I walked out of the door, my dream of becoming a therapist was crushed. I figured my career was over. I had failed, and I was deeply ashamed. 
In a daze, I drove to my university and wandered the halls looking for someone to advise me. No one was there that day except for the dean of psychology. I had never talked with him before, so I entered his office tentatively. I was still shaking as I handed him the document that my supervisor gave me. I figured that the dean would kick me out of the program. He read the document very carefully and said that all the allegations were typical intern issues. He was so compassionate and understanding. He told me that there are occasional bad matches between supervisors and supervisees, which can result in conflict. I asked him if he thought I should abandon my dream of becoming a therapist. He encouraged me to hang in there and try again. Cautiously relieved, I left, and though shaken up quite a bit, I took his advice. I got back on the horse. Within a few weeks, I started my second internship, which, as I write this paragraph over 20 years later, I now realize was the beginning of a long, successful career as a therapist and later podcast host. (laughs) Being fired, though, had a lingering effect on me. From time to time, things would come up and remind me of that awful final meeting with that first supervisor, and I would break out in a cold sweat. Even now, just writing this sentence produces perspiration. Which it did. (laughs) Which it is now. (laughs) I have like a PTSD reaction to that whole event, actually. Uh, and that's no joke. Like, it's, it's a literal PTSD reaction. It was, it was one of the worst moments of my life. Let's just put it that way. Throughout my early career, whenever a supervisor criticized me, I flinched with fear. I avoided, I avoided revealing too much to other supervisors for fear of being fired again. This avoidance likely hindered my professional development and my work with clients. To this day, I remain ashamed of being fired. On my resume and curriculum vitae, I don't mention it. For two decades, it remained a disgraceful secret that only, that only a few close friends ever knew. It was not until I started writing this book that I began to talk about it publicly and, it, and talk about it on this podcast. I think I've talked about it on this podcast before, but not in detail. Anyway, so, so that's the beginning of the introduction. And then I go into sort of my discovery process of wait, so I wasn't, I'm not alone. There are other people being treated poorly by their supervisors. And then I look into the research and I find that, you know, recently in the last five years, researchers have looked into these issues and found that the vast, you know, a, you know a very high percentage of like most, more than half, let's just put it that way, of supervisees were found to be getting inadequate or, and or unethical supervision. And a and a smaller portion of them, like something like a third, are, are getting actually harmful supervision where they feel unsafe or they're being abused somehow or they're being exploited somehow or something along those lines. And when I read that research, I was like, my God. And then I looked back at my story and I thought, man, I, I was part of the, the norm in some ways being treated this way. Um, and I have to say, um, it was a very critical moment in my life when I, after being fired, I, I, I got in my little Honda civic and I drove directly to the university, wandered the halls, uh, talked to the Dean and I was totally expecting him to tell me, well, you're done. 
And I was even expecting myself to say, I guess I'm done because I don't, I'm obviously not good enough. And even if I am good enough, I don't want to be treated like this anymore. If this is how it's going to be, then it's over. I mean, imagine, I mean, you don't have to imagine, but when I imagine my life and how different it would be right now, if I hadn't had followed the Dean's advice and, and persevered, you know, or if the Dean had had a different disposition towards me, you know, it, it just boggles the mind. It was such a it was such a fragile moment in my life. I I easily could have just got in my car, drove home, and said, "Well, that's it. I guess I'll do something else with my life." I guess I probably were, would have worked at Microsoft or something like everyone else did around that time. Um. So so in the book, I, I go through the research and I talk about different uh, data points and. And then I go into uh, a history of the supervision models that have been around for the past several decades. And then I talk about my model, in particular, sort of overview of my, my model, which I'm calling, I, it took me a while to name it, but, but it's called multi-role clinical supervision. I, you know, I don't know about the, the name, it doesn't really roll off the tongue, but it describes it. Because <laughs> you know, when you have 19 roles in a supervision model, you know, that, that's multi-role. Uh, then I go into the different categories of roles, uh, which I'll get into in a second. I'll, I'll, I'll give the different 19 roles in a second. And that's the bulk of the book is, is just talking about the roles, the 19 roles, and the research in each role, and the best practices and my experiences, both as a supervisee and a supervisor. Um, there's a chapter on public safeguarding, which has to do with gatekeeping and client welfare and, and that kind of stuff. And um, as a program director, I've had to kick people out of the profession a number of times and, and or have been faced with that decision. And, and as a supervisor, I've been faced with that decision a lot. And so I talk a lot about that and about, and I review the prevailing literature on it and stuff. But anyway, and then at the end of the book, I, I provide some recommendations to the field regarding what I think should be done to raise the bar, namely increasing the minimum level of, of education and training needed in order to become a supervisor. I, my, <laughs> as I started to develop what I thought should be done in our field in terms of uh, super, supervisor training, I realized I was asking for a lot because right now there are some supervisors who who can many supervisors can become super many people can become supervisors today without any training, and my 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 recommendation is like something like a year of classes or something at least of full time classes, you know, and so, um, but I I think it's necessary. I I don't I don't. I, I imagine in 50 years, it that will be the standard anyway, because it will only, I hope anyway, because it'll only become more and more apparent. The, the problem that we have in our field with all this terrible supervision will only stay a secret for so long. I daily, eh, almost daily, probably average daily, I don't know, 
get emails from you out there emailing me, telling me about your therapists who obviously are, you know, misguided. <laughs> and some of the reasons might have to, might have to do with the supervision they received and or are receiving. I received an email today from a listener who had a, who had a therapist who was asking her, so the therapist is asking the client to look up his, the, the therapist's current wife's Facebook to see if the therapist's wife is cheating on him. Does that, it's hard to map that out, but so basically it'd be as, so I'm the therapist. It'd be as if I asked my client, Hey, can you go on Facebook and get onto my wife's Facebook page and see if she's cheating on me? That's what the, that's what the therapist did many times. And, and the, the, that's just today, you know? So I get these, I get these emails all the time. Now, is that only because of supervision? No, but, but it's probably a factor. And then I also get all these emails from therapists who tell me about their supervisors. And so anyway, it, it's a sad state of affairs, but it's, it's, it can only stay a secret for so long. Something's going to happen and this whole thing's going to blow up in our face because the data is there is the thing. You know, once there's a, like a, a very noticeable case, like in the media or something where a supervisor just completely fails their supervisee, they're going to look at the data or they're going to call me <laughs> and I'm going to comment and I'm going to be like, yeah, this doesn't surprise me at all. And then, and then there's, there's going to be a, maybe a public outcry or at least a massive embarrassment on our field. And I'm not talking about any particular field. I'm talking about it's across the board, psychology, counseling, marriage and family therapy, social work, everyone. We, we all have this, we all have similar numbers. And so it's going to be embarrassing. Uh, And wouldn't it be nice if we could nip this in the bud and actually be proactive about this and so, so I provide a lot of these extremely uh, far-reaching recommendations that I think will be implemented within the next 50 to 100 years, but I don't see it happening anytime soon, but I hope it does anyway. And then I have a chapter on advice for supervisees. The, the reason why I have this chapter is because when I would send the, the early drafts of this book out to, to different people to review and just give me feedback... I, I would give it to some people who were supervisees and not supervisors. And they would email me back and they'd be like, oh my God, there's all these terrible things and the, there's and, and there's all these like awful things happening in our field about supervision. What am I supposed to do about it? And so I have a, 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 a chapter giving very quick advice, very practical advice though, to supervisees in terms of how you can get the most out of supervision and how you can get the best supervisor too. Um, some, cause a lot of times you actually do have control over that. And then the last chapter is a conclusion. And then, and then I list all my references, which again, there are hundreds. Okay. So I want to read the conclusion here. In writing this book, I have exercised a number of my demons, particularly the sense of low self-esteem that flared up a, upon being fired from my first internship. It has taken me more than 20 years to come to terms with what happened that day. B. 
being fired used being fired used to be an ugly scar that I hid in shame. Now, in light of what I've learned from researching this book, being fired has become a badge of solidarity with other harmed supervisees and a call to improve the quality of supervision. As discussed, as discussed in Chapter 1, there is a high rate of inadequate and harmful, supervi- harmful supervision. This is in spite of a large body of research indicating the importance of supervision for therapist development and the positive effects supervision has on client outcomes. These problems seem to be perpetuated by the lack of super, by the lack of supervisor training. To alleviate these problems, I've proposed a supervision model that describes 19 roles that should be considered and fulfilled by supervisors. Multi-role clinical supervision involves the following roles. Uh, there's four categories of roles. The first category is the relationship roles. And the relationship roles are roles that the supervisor focuses on to establish a strong relationship with the supervisee. And those roles are alliance facilitator, attachment figure, listener, supporter, advocate, and mentor. So those are the relationship roles. Alliance facilitator, attachment figure, listener, supporter, advocate, and mentor. The second category is public safeguarding roles. These roles consist of three roles called, these are you know my terms, um, client welfare monitor, gatekeeper, and administrator. So, so the public safeguarding roles are the roles involved in making sure that the supervisee is fit to be a therapist and, and not just, you know, kicking someone out of the field, but actually like figuring out how to uh, involve remediation. I actually go into legal stuff. I go into the, remember that the episodes I did in regards to conversion therapy and, and that kind of thing. Um, I, I go into a detailed discussion about that and, the differences between how the courts react to different kinds of things. Anyway, the third category of roles I'm calling skill building roles, you know, helping a supervisee develop skills. So this is different from relationship roles and it's different from public safeguarding roles. There's overlap, but it's, it's, it's different. So skill building roles in my, my terms are evaluative commentator, teacher, model, ethics expert, and professional advisor. Again, evaluative commentator, teacher, model, you know, like you, you, you model how to be a good therapist, ethics expert, and professional advisor. The fourth and last category of the 19 roles of clinical supervision in multi-role clinical supervision is called guiding roles. So again, you have the relationship roles, you have the public safeguarding roles, you have the skill building roles, and you have the guiding roles. This is a little different. It's a little different. There's some overlap, but it's a little different from skill building. And you'll see once I read the titles of the roles I came up with. So the roles are called self-awareness guide, case reviewer, cultural colleague, isomorphic investigator, and self-supervision coach. 
Again, self-awareness guide, case reviewer, cultural colleague, very important, isomorphic investigator, and self-supervision coach. So those are the 19 roles involved in clinical, in multi-role clinical supervision. Okay, so continuing with the conclusion. For each role, evidence and best practices were illustrated. Recommendations were also provided, namely increased training requirements for supervisor licensure. Writing this book has been a fruitful exercise as it gave me the opportunity to reflect on and evaluate my own perspective and practices. Through this process, I am inspired to foster secure attachments with supervisees and to pay attention to the alliance. I am reminded of the importance of being courageous and honest regarding constructive feedback and cultural conversations. I have a better sense of my duty to safeguard the public and of my responsibility to develop and adhere to systems of evaluation and gatekeeping. It is my hope that this book has provided a practical and comprehensive guide to the provision of beneficial supervision and that supervisors and supervisees will be inspired to cultivate the relationship that they each deserve. So (laughs) I don't think, I, I don't know if it was intentional or not as I was writing this book, but I realized that I ended the book with some reference to what people deserve, which as listeners to the podcast will, um, you know, might chuckle at a little bit. Um, I, I do consider the word deserve to be a very important one. I mean, there's a certain evil side to deserving, right? Uh, in terms of being feeling over entitlement or something. But I feel like a lot of times when I am talking with people, I'm, I'm thinking about, man, you deserve better than that. Or, man, you deserve a break. Or, man, our field deserves better supervisors. <laughs> you know, there's just the word deserve. I don't, it just, it has sort of a, a very important implication. It's just like, you know, supervisees deserve a good super, a good supervisor. Supervisees are often paying a lot of money, or uh, they're dedicating a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to being an intern or something. And a lot of them actually pay to be an intern sometimes. And so there's that. And supervisees are often extremely interested in learning, and they want to develop, and they're insecure. And they're it's universal that supervisees, interns in particular, are terrified. And But they want to do a good job in the world. And so they've they've earned the right to have a good supervisor who makes them feel safe who supports them who listens to them who pays attention to them who is there for them and many people don't feel like they have that and it just breaks my heart okay so who might be interested in this book well obviously supervisors would be interested in this book I would hope whether you're an on-site supervisor or you're a faculty supervisor or you're in private practice as a supervisor, I I'm, it's an easy to read book, I think. And it's again, not very long. And it, I think, I think any supervisor who read it would at least find something where they'd be like, huh, I hadn't thought of it that way, or that's interesting or, huh, I think that 
you know, inspires me to focus more on this or that. So I think for any supervisor, it would be good. That's a very niche market, I have to say. <laughs> you know, this isn't this isn't Harry Potter. I'm not I'm not uh, targeting the entire world. Um, also, supervisors in training, obviously, right? If 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 a, if someone is training to become a supervisor, then this book might even be more relevant because they're just starting out, and often supervisors in training have to read stuff, and so. Also, I would imagine that supervisor trainers would be interested in this. So people who train supervisors like myself, people who do continuing ed, because as, as, a, as a marriage and family therapist approved supervisor myself, I have to have continuing ed. I have to have a certain amount of hours. And so I would imagine that this book might be interesting to those people. I don't know. Now... I would imagine that also psychotherapy educators might be interested in this, you know, even though, even if you're not a supervisor, but you teach therapists and counselors and psychologists and social workers, I I imagine that this book might be helpful because as a teacher, you're often, the, the roles are often very similar. And so as a teacher of counselors, my guess is this book might also be interesting to you. Because I, I think it applies to teaching, to the teacher-student relationship as well. And I suppose, actually, maybe any teaching-student relationship, honestly. If, if you're in a PhD biology program and you're teaching a small group of grad students and you feel like you're a mentor to them, I, I, I wonder if this book might be of interest to you as well. There would be things that wouldn't apply, of course, but I think many things might. Um, also, if you're a therapist or a counselor or a psychiatrist, nurse practitioner, social worker, psychologist who is thinking about becoming a supervisor, I would imagine that this book would be interesting, interesting to you, not only as a stepping off point of your career development, development but also maybe even learning about whether or not you want to be a supervisor because there's a lot of stories that I talk about and it provides a, a you know a lot of examples of what super supervision actually involves um i i would imagine that this might also be of interest to supervisees maybe particularly the chapter on advice to supervisees obviously but but when I gave this to supervisees to just give me feedback, they all said that it was worth reading for themselves because even though the book has is the book is directly giving advice to supervisors, except for the chapter on advice to supervisees. I think as a supervisee, it's interesting to read what supervision actually could be like. And to help supervisees understand where they're at, I, I think it it helps them. You know, if you're a supervisee and you're like, "Huh, is my supervisor good or bad?" I think if you read this book, you'd you'd get a better sense of that. And if you find you're like, "Hey, I have a good supervisor," then I think it might motivate you to use your supervisor well, because that's one of the tips that I have in the uh, chapter for advice to supervisees, which is that 
if you have a good supervisor, like make sure you capitalize on that because that might be the one supervisor you ever have in your career who you actually enjoy. You might never have another supervisor that you enjoy. If if you're anything like the rest of people, because I, I talked with a lot of other colleagues of mine and I asked them like, you know, how many of your supervisors were actually good for your career development? They would say like, uh, I don't know, 20%. <laughs> and so anyway, if you fa- now if, if you read the book and you're like, huh, I think my supervisor is bad, then it might help to validate that and normalize it for you but it also might i also provide some tips on how to how to engineer your life so that you actually get better supervision either with the supervisor you have already or with a new one i imagine that supervisors in other fields might be interested in this book i'm not sure maybe medicine maybe business owners i don't know because i didn't think about this as i was writing the book but after i was done i was like well, if I was a supervisor of physicians, I'm guessing that a lot of these roles would be very similar. Or if I was a business owner and I was and and I had a a few underlings that I was taking under my wing and trying to cultivate a relationship of mentor mentorship with them, I imagine that a lot of things I talk about in this book would be relevant, but I'm not sure about that. <laughs> Also, if you're listening thus far, you're probably a fan of the podcast. And if it, you might be interested in the book, I, it's it's not a it's not a cheap book. I, I priced it at thirty nine fifty, so you know, basically forty dollars. And I think Amazon will eventually discount it. I'm not sure, but the it's not a cheap. It's not like a five dollar book. So it it's not a small investment, but I'm guessing, like, I'm just trying to think of myself for the pot, the podcasts I listen to. You know, like, if Ira Glass wrote a, he's the This American Life guy, if you don't know. If, if Ira Glass wrote a book about how to mentor other podcasters <laughs> or how to mentor journalists or something, I, I'm, and especially if Ira Glass talked about his own life the way I talk about my life in this book. I might I might be interested in that book, even though a lot of the advice I might be like, huh, I don't that doesn't really apply to me. But I might find it interesting. I don't know. So so if you're listening to this and you're not in the field and you you never are gonna be in the field and you're not a supervisor of any kind, I don't know. I think there's a chance that you might find the book interesting. Uh, you know, but choose wisely because honestly, the worst nightmare I can ever imagine is someone pays the money, buys it on Amazon, they get it, and they're like, this this book completely doesn't apply to me at all. <laughs> Why did I spend that money? Uh, that would just make me feel awful. That is not that is not my goal in life. So um so I I write a I have an acknowledgement page, which is so <laughs> That's another thing in terms of publishing this book is I self-published, by the way. And so I had to get advice from other writers and editors and stuff. But I didn't really have a, a like someone overseeing me. It was all just like friends and colleagues providing advice. And so when I actually went to design the book itself, like the font, like how, how do, what font do you use? And 
how big are the pages and what's the book cover supposed to look like? And one of the things that I, when I would look at other, so I looked at other books that I liked, you know, sort of flip through them back. Oh, I see. And one of the things I always saw was an acknowledgements page. And I never read the acknowledgements. It's just the acknowledgements page was just one of those pages I would flip by as I got to chapter one. And I was like, hey, I'll, I'll write an acknowledgements page. And so here we go. I want to express my appreciation to all my friends and colleagues who provided comments and edits after being subjected to early versions of this book. I am a decidedly mediocre writer, and most of the good passages can be attributed to them. In particular, I would like to thank my good friends Jennifer Sampson, Sarah Jones, and Bob Gettle, all of whom are excellent writers and editors who patiently and at times pointedly offered suggestions. Much of this book and my career stems from the mentorship and compassion I received from my favorite supervisors, including Paul David, Amy Cam, Phil Cushman, and Bill Heusler. Whenever I ran out of words, I would recall their wise guidance. I also owe a debt of gratitude to my supervisees, both past and present, for trusting me with their careers and for teaching me so much. My employer, Antioch University, should also be acknowledged for granting for granting faculty time to pursue academic writing. So that's my acknowledgement section. Yeah, I I am a decidedly mediocre writer. I have realized that through this process. <laughs> and and really I've known that my entire life. I was uh, reading and writing in English and language arts and whatever they called the class was always one of my worst subjects. Although since I was basically a straight A student, I would always end up in like you know, the advanced placement English class. But the example I was given, I might've talked about in the podcast before is I, I had this AP English teacher when I was a freshman in high school. And this was the first class I'd ever taken where writing was like a thing, you know, it was like a serious endeavor writing. Although, you know, for ninth graders and we would read Shakespeare and we would read blah, blah, blah. And then she would, on Friday, she would say, okay, I'm going to sign a paper that will be due on Monday. I want you to write five paragraphs, at least, about the following topic. You know, I want you to write about Macbeth or something. And, and I asked her, I was like, well, how many sentences do the paragraphs have to have? And she says, well, I guess three, you know, anything less than three isn't really a paragraph. And I was like, okay. So at least five paragraphs of at least three sentences each. Well, that means 15 sentences. <laughs> so, I, so I went home Friday night and sat on my bed and with my erasable ink pen, because we didn't have computers back then really, I, I tried to write a paper. And it was... Exactly 15, every time I got the assignment, it was always exactly 15 sentences long because I had to have an intro, sec, an intro paragraph, three paragraphs, and then a conclusion paragraph. Each, each paragraph had to have three sentences. And it would take me all weekend, like morning to night, writing those 15 sentences. I was awful. I didn't know where to begin. I didn't, I just, I couldn't, I just couldn't put thoughts to page. I had no idea how to do that. I knew how to have a conversation. I knew how to talk, but making something into a presentation for other people to look at or to scrutinize or 
putting together something that's organized that walks someone through a an experience you know that each each sentence blending into the next and there's ideas coming out like i just could not do that i basically i re, i remember basically like how can i write this paper so it looks like a real five paragraph paper but actually isn't because i don't know what i'm saying i don't even know what to say <laughs> and i would just struggle all weekend long and I would turn it in and I would get like a C or a B or something. And then I remember this one time, it was middle of the day and it was just before the class and I had my paper ready to go. And I was like, man, I worked all week on this and it's a terrible paper and I know it is. And But, you know, what are you going to do? And I look over and my friend Tammy, I... I say to her, Hey, did you, you know, did you, did you write that paper for, uh, for that class? And she says, Oh, I forgot all about it. And she's, and I'm like, Oh man, you're, you're busted. And she's like, Oh no, I'll just write it right now. And she pulls out a piece of paper and a pen and she just starts writing and she writes two or three pages without stopping. And I'm like, it must be crap. So I pick it up. I go, can I read it? And it's beautiful. It's topic, sentences, you know, body, conclusions, uh, eloquence, you know, all these wonderful, like, connections she's making. And, and I just looked at her. I was like, what is the difference between you and me? Like, how come I cannot write? I am just a terrible writer. And, and then... I got into college and again, I somehow like managed to get good grades anyway, which is just a, just kind of a weird thing. But I get into college and I, at the university of Washington and I am getting a business degree and I'm trying to write these papers and, and I'm getting a little better. I'm basically getting to the point where I can write a passable paper and then I get my master's in psychology, and that's when I wrote in every class. And so that's when I really started to get better as a writer. And, and my master's papers, when I read them today, aren't terrible. They're not great, but they're, they're fine. You know? and, and I think the ideas are probably good. The format isn't probably great. Anyway, so when I sat down to write this book, I, there, there were, I can't even tell you how many times I thought I was done with this book. There were... There were early drafts that I that I had finished, I don't know, maybe nine months ago, that I, I would hit, I would turn off my computer and I'd be like, man, I'm done with that thing. That thing is beautiful. And then I'd hand it over to someone to read and they would send it back with comments. And at first I'd be like, man, you know, they have a lot of negative comments, which maybe they're just really picky. <laughs> but then I really would read their comments and I'd be like, man, they're right. This book is shit. <laughs> and so over the, over the you know, last year, I've just been every week learning about how to write and how to put things together and, and how to organize things and like conventions of writing. Because that's the other thing is like, I, I've never really paid attention to the conventions of writing in my field. I've always just read stuff, you know. And I've and I've written a fair amount. I've you know, it's, but it's always been kind of technical writing, not not like 
trying to convince somebody of something. Anyway, so I thought that I was done with this book, no joke, 40 to 50 times, where I was like, yep, looks good. Send it to a few people. It comes back with just all these marks. <laughs> and you know, a lot of times you knew it was a good criticism because like two or three different readers would say the same thing. They'd be like, what are you doing here? This doesn't make any sense. You know, like all three people would say that and I'd be like, oh man, you know, cause it all makes sense in my head. But, <laughs> but, but anyway, so, so I feel like the term, I feel like I've gotten like a whole education in how to write a book in the last couple of years. And so in publishing this book, I I'm pretty confident that it's, that it's, that it's good. You know, it's not amazing. It's not like Hemingway or anything, but I, I think I'm, I'm really proud of it, but I have to thank all of the people who read these, who read these early drafts and gave me feedback, uh, namely a lot of you listeners, including Andrea and Graham and Jade and Maite and Nathan and Noah and Ryan and Simon and Tim. I, I sent out an invitation to everyone asking for people to volunteer to read the early, the sort of middle draft version of sort of the middle ver the middle that there were something like 40 drafts. So, so I sent out like draft 20 or something to, to listeners. And I really think, cause and, and, and a, a few of you actually read every single word, you know what I mean? And so I, I really thank you for that. But in particular, there were three people that I want to thank. One is, is Jennifer Sampson, who is my colleague at work. Uh, she's another instructor. She's actually chair of the, so I, I I've told you all about how, I I think how I I'm no longer program director of my program because I found that I being program director of a training program means that you have no time to do anything other than program direct. <laughs> it, it means I, I wasn't able to teach as much. I wasn't able to supervise as much and I wasn't able to write as much. So just, you know, five months after I, five months four or five months after I stopped being program director, I'm done with a book. So I wouldn't have been able to finish this book if I, if I hadn't quit being a program director. Well, I handed the job over to Jennifer Sampson. And so she's now my boss. So I, I made um, her my boss <laughs> and I, she's great. She's a fantastic program director. And I think she's more suited to it than I am mainly because she seems to handle the stress better, but um, she read the early version of, she was the main reader of the early versions of this book. And she was the, <laughs> she had to endure extremely bad drafts of this early book. So uh, she's a lot of the reason why I got this thing off the ground is because of her and her encouragement, by the way. And the other two people, Sarah Jones and Bob Gettle, these are, these are two, you you know, Bob Gettle, he's been on the podcast before as a guest. He's a friend of mine, actually, who went to graduate school with me and was there when I got fired from my first internship, by the way. And he's been a friend ever since. And we played Stratego the other night. That was fun. Uh, he He's actually an accomplished writer himself and 
is extremely anal about grammar. <laughs> I, I came to learn. And so he had a lot to do with this book. And also Sarah Jones, a friend of mine from 10 years ago, she's a professional writer and editor herself. And she provided a lot of really great feedback and encouragement. Well, I, every, whenever I write something sort of, um, uh, either casually or professionally, I send it to Sarah. Uh, we just send each other our writings and, you know, we're, we try to encourage each other, but anyway, also I, you know, in the acknowledgements, I acknowledge my favorite supervisors, namely Paul David, who has been my mentor, uh, ever since I write about that whole thing in the book, but he's been on the podcast before a long time ago, but he, he, he was program director of my program for the first 20 years of its existence. And then he handed it over to me. So talk about a mentorship, you know? And so I thank him and Amy cam, who was my second internship or my second uh, supervisor. She, had to endure me as an insecure supervisee because I was scared of being fired again. Because basically what my program, so after being fired, my program, my program told me, look, we're this, this happens sometimes, no big deal. You know, just get a second internship, start over. Let's, let's, let's make this happen. But they also said, look, if you get fired again, then you're done because you know, First time you get fired, we'll chalk it up to a bad relationship. Second time you get fired, well, it's you. <laughs> so I went to my second internship with Amy Cam as my supervisor, and I was just I was terrified of her firing me. Now, she was perfect for me. She was so nice. I felt so safe with her. She ended up hiring me at at, at this small agency in in south you know, south of Seattle. I also thank Phil Cushman. He was a supervisor of mine during my doctorate. And another doctorate supervisor is Bill Hoisler. Bill Hoisler, I've been trying to get that guy on this podcast, but he's such a busy guy. He, he's just never able to. He is one of my favorite people on the planet. He is so funny and so smart. And he, I learned so much from that guy and I felt so safe with him and I just respect the heck out of him. So um, Phil Cushman, um, I write about in the book as well. He was a big figure in my confidence in writing, actually, because he was not only was he a supervisor, but he was also a, a an instructor of mine. And when I would submit papers to him, he would send them back to me and he would be like, man, I really like what you did here with that and stuff. And I was like, huh? Uh, Cause he's an accomplished writer himself and, and he's published a lot. And hearing from him that he liked my writing was just like, huh? Now he might've said that to every single student. I don't know, but it worked on me. <laughs> um, I also thank my university because my, my university has this really cool thing about it. Uh, and, many universities do in which basically for three months out of the year, I get paid as an instructor to take time off from teaching and from being an administrator and and an advisor and a blah, blah, blah at my university just to do things like writing. 
So every year I get a three-month sabbatical, essentially, to do some kind of professional or academic pursuit, which includes writing, which means that – which is the quarter I'm in right now, actually. So the three months span I'm in right now at the end of 2017 are those three months. And so it's given me a lot of time to publish this book. So I you know, wanted to thank my university for that. So <laughs> while I'm on the topic, I, I want to talk about – how I got started on this book because I never thought I would write a book on supervision. That was, that was never a goal of mine. So um, probably like 10 years ago or something, I decided to become an approved supervisor through the American Association of Marriage and Family Therapy. So, you know, for those in the know, you know this, but in, in my field of marriage and family therapy, the sort of one of the top credentials you can get is the is an approved supervisor. So to become an approved supervisor, you have to go through some training. You have to have someone supervise your supervision. You have to write some papers. You have to go. Th- you know, you have to. It's a, like a it's like a mini masters. You know, very mini, <laughs> I should say. Well, one of the main things that you do during that training period that takes two years is you write a philosophy of supervision paper. So you're supposed to read the literature and you're supposed to think about your own supervision and you're supposed to write this paper that outlines your philosophy of supervision. Well, one of the things that students will do sometimes or what, 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 what novice, so, so novice therapists, when they graduate, they need to have a supervisor for a while. So even though they've graduated and they have a master's or they have a doctorate, they need to continue getting supervision for a while. And so if you're going into private practice, you get to hire your own supervisor. And so people will contact me and they'll say, hey, I was thinking about hiring you as a supervisor. And, and some of those people will say, to help me choose whether or not I want to hire you, can you send me your philosophy of supervision paper? And so one postgrad asked me that. She was like, hey, you know, I'm shopping around, thinking about hiring you. Can I, can I look at your philosophy of supervision paper? And I was like, I was like, yeah, sure. And so I sent it to her. And then after, I'll never forget this. This is probably, God, this is probably like two years ago, two and a half years ago, maybe three. I don't know. Long time ago. And actually, I could probably figure this out when that was. That's kind of important. Okay, just looked it up. It was a year and a half ago. It was... It was May of 16. <laughs> so so that's, that's when she asked for that, that paper, and I sent it to her. Okay, so, so I've been writing this thing for a year and a half. I guess it's not that bad, but still, year and a half. Year and a half, probably two full days a week. <laughs> so how many hours is that? You know, when, you, when I would sit down to write, I would always work best if I, I would get up, you know, kind of get myself situated, get a good cup, cup of coffee, and then I would just write from morning until as for as long until sometimes till midnight. I'd just be writing anyway. Um, and a lot of the quote unquote writing involved reading and thinking. But anyway, so year and a half ago, I sent her this philosophy of supervision paper, and I thought, huh, I should probably look at this thing because it's been a while because it'd been. It had been four years since I'd written it. And so I, I looked it over and I was like, oh my God, this is terrible. This paper is awful. I'm sending this 
paper out to people and it's just awful. So I was like, okay, I need to revise that paper. So I was like, okay, I'll sit down, maybe a Saturday, revise that thing, polish it up, get it ready to go. Well, sat down, took a Saturday, uh, started looking at some literature, and I realized by the end of the day, I had just sort of scratched the surface on this thing. And then I spent a few more weeks, and then it grew into a few more months. And I'm thinking, man, this thing is turning into... A, not just a paper, but like something bigger than a paper. I don't know. Wh- why am I writing this thing? <laughs> um, the same thing happened. I've written, I've halfway written five other books. So the fact that I published this one first is kind of weird for me because if you would have asked me four years ago, what's the first book you're going to publish? It would not have been, oh, a supervision book. Because I have a grief book that is halfway done. Anyway, so I kind of hit this crossroad where I'm like, wait a second, I'm, I've been dedicating months of my free time to writing this thing, and what am I doing? I, I, I'm not done with this thing, and I have like probably months more of work to do with this thing, and why have I started this? What am I doing? And so I, I just kind of said, I just kind of, I crossed, I crossed this, I came to a crossroad and I was like, okay, I could either just sort of wrap this up now and forget it or publish it, you know, reduce it. Cause it was too long for a, for a journal article. It was too long for a magazine. And so I was like, well, I could, I could shrink this down and submit it and get it published in, you know, psychotherapy network or something. And, um, or I could really, do this thing and maybe even write a short book. And because I'm stupid, I was like, okay, let's write a book. And so I really went for it and I got really into it. And this book was very easy for me to write. Really. It was, it was a lot of fun actually. I mean, there were definite times where I was like, Oh man, this is work. But the fact that I just volunteered my free time and so much, I mean, I think I estimated something like 700 hours. um, And me, and, and I, I hate to admit it, it's probably more than that, though, is the thing. It's just writing, any one of you, any of you out there who've written things before, you know, it just it just takes a long time. It's one thing to just write something out, something, a rough draft, and be like, eh. It's another thing to fine-tune something to the point where you're proud enough to put it, to, to, to pay for it to be published and bound and, you know, all that stuff. Um, so I, so yeah, so... I, I did that. I, I went for it. And then I gave drafts to Jennifer Sampson. And, she, you know, I worked with her for a bit. I gave some drafts to some other people. I started interviewing supervisees to kind of really figure out Aaron McLean, Christy Forrester, I think Jessamy. Um, I talked to her, Laura Matthews. I talked to these people. I was like, okay, you were my supervisee. Tell me what I did wrong and what I did right. And, and I, you know, and I was really trying to be open. Maybe I'll publish those in Cause I recorded those interviews so I could listen back to them. Um, if it's one thing I learned from my phenomenological research is that when you record conversation and listen back to it 10 times, you learn so much more than if you just, you know, interview someone in person once. But anyway, 
Then I asked Bob to help me, and I asked Sarah Jones to help me, and then I sent it to the listeners. Then I went back to Bob and back to Sarah, and then I revised, went back to Bob, back to Sarah, revised, back to Bob, back to Sarah, revised, back to Bob. I mean, I'm not, I'm not joking. I, 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 with Jennifer Sampson alone, I probably had five drafts over the span of a few months, and with Sarah and Bob, is probably ten drafts. But anyway. And then it took me a while to figure out how to self-publish. That's a whole pain in the ass. So anyway, this is all to say that if you're interested in this book, go to Amazon and buy it. <laughs> it's called Multi-Role Clinical Supervision, and it is on Amazon. And I'm really proud of it. And you can read the first chapter on Amazon. It has like, you know, it always has like a some sample pages, and it's basically the first chapter. But... I think, but it doesn't, the first chapter doesn't really get into the meat of the book. You know, it's, it's it's basically just ramping up to the meat of the book. So, um, yeah. And let me know what you think about it and let's all try to improve the state of supervision in our field because it is not good. You know, let's, let's all do what we can to make supervision better because I don't want other people to have to have to experience what I experienced. In fact, someone today just emailed me and she's like, "Hey, I because I posted on Facebook, um, you know, on the Psychology in Seattle Facebook page that I had finished this book, and someone went to Amazon, read the first chapter, and then emailed me, and she's like, "Oh my God, you you got fired from your first internship, and you write about it, and thank you so much because I just got fired from my first internship." <laughs> She, I think she, she just got fired like, like, I don't know, weeks within weeks or something. And, and she's like, I felt the same way. I was just like, you know, my, I thought my career was over and I didn't know what to do. And to read about what you went through really helped me. Um, I, I don't want other people to have to go through that. It's, uh, I, I'm still trying to recover from that. I still break out in a sweat when I think about, those experiences. Oh, and by the way, I was only with that supervisor for eight weeks. <laughs> I was only, I was only with him for eight weeks before he fired me. Um, and every meeting I had with him, I had to meditate beforehand to cope with that. Oh, and I also write about in the book. I write about confronting him later. <laughs> I run into him. I ran into him last year. No. Three years ago, wow, long time ago, and confronted him and just just went right up to him. I was like, and I write about that whole process. But anyway, um, I confronted my first supervisor. If that doesn't make any sense, anyway, I, I don't want other people to have to go through that. It's it's a it's a terrible thing. If it was like a five percent thing, I'd be like, well, you know, you win some, you lose some. But when so many people are being treated badly by their supervisors in our field. And when an even more amount of people are having supervisors who basically are doing nothing, who are not helping the supervisee at all, when so many people are not being treated the way they should be and they're not getting the supervision that they deserve... And honestly, when so many supervisor, when su- when so many supervisors are thrown in the, into the position without ever get getting a chance to be trained and ne- never getting a chance to be mentored into the supervisor role, uh, 
I, I just say, you know, we got to put an end to that. And, and if my book is just a, a tiny, a tiny little baby step in that direction, then I, that makes me feel good. So, so yeah, go to Amazon, buy the book. Let me know what you think about it. I'll probably be making other episodes about this topic in the future. We'll see. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really do deserve it. Thank you.